Uh, Maria, good to finally meet you uh, sort of in person. Is Skype in person? Not really. How are you? Fine. Thank you for inviting me. Likewise, nice to meet you. So I, I wasn't aware of your research before I saw you speak at the Oslo Forum a couple of weeks ago in in the free state of uh, the free city of Miami, Florida. And uh, you, you talked uh, a lot about um, Fidel Castro and, and the Cuban regime and, and how that's taking over Latin America. And I want to get into all that, but maybe you could start off by introducing your your foundation and tell us a little bit about your personal history as a as someone that was born in Havana and escaped the Castro regime. Well, I guess the story of my whole life surrounds the Cuban regime. It's amazing because uh, we didn't get into this, obviously, at the Oslo Freedom Forum. There's such such little time, but I gather that I I got into this by by osmosis almost, um, because I was engendered in Miami, Florida, when my both my parents were in exile from the Batista regime, because my mother came from a very wealthy family in Havana and to join the resistance against the dictatorship of Batista and the 26th of July movement, and had met my father who had come down from fighting in the Sierra Maestra under Che Guevara. And it's a long story of why he and several others left, but it actually has to do with uh, Che Guevara and Fidel Castro not following their own laws. Um, and that's how my parents married in Miami and, and I was created there. And then they were actually in, if not the first plane, the one of the first that landed in Cuba after the takeover of the revolution, if you wanna say, or after Batista fled the country. December 31st or January 1st of 1959. They came, they arrived with the leadership that was in exile of the 26th of July movement. And my father was part of, you know, the, the initial government. And immediately they, they realized this is not what we fought for. Uh, the revolution to Batista had uh, promised free elections, the restoration of the 1940 constitution and, and, and rule of law. And what, what they immediately saw was mass executions, you know, Fidel Castro's figure growing uh, beyond anything that anybody expected, you know, laws passed by decree, and immediately they started doing opposition. To make a long story short, um, my, a friend from the Sierra Maestra told my father, they're, they're after you, and right then and there, they would, they would uh, put you in prison and execute you immediately. So they, my, my parents were trying to get my uh, documentation because I was born. Um, August is 1959, a few months after the revolution came to power. And they managed to um, flee to, to Miami again. So actually my life comes back to Miami, sort of. I was away for many years. Um, and that's, you know, then he joined eventually the, the brigade 2506 that invaded Cuba and died in the Bay of Pigs. So then my, you know, my family left uh, Miami and I grew up in Puerto Rico from age eight to when I went to university in Washington DC at Georgetown. And I never really went back to live there in my West Puerto Rico, but that was kind of like the calm years of growing up away from the trauma that I, that we had lived in Miami with the family torn apart, my father killed, you know, little money, 
a lot of drama and sorrow and pain that I picked up when I was little. Puerto Rico is like a refuge from that. And uh, sorry about that, I should have turned this off. And uh, then when I went back to Georgetown, I again got into, I was a student in foreign services, uh, which is international relations. And every paper I had to do, I would focus on Cuba. And that's where I started to absorb this again. And then eventually I was the president of the Cuban Students Association. So we were very involved. And then I uh, started a career in banking, moved to South America, lived in Venezuela and in Chile for 10 years. Uh, my husband then was not Cuban. He was German-American or American of German heritage. So I was away from the Cuba issue, but never away. It was always, you know, very interesting to me. And I was always very involved and committed to the human rights and but raising a family and doing other things. And then we came back to the New York area. He got transferred back to um, the headquarters and I had left banking. I had done my master's degree in international relations in Chile. I had studied the, the Chilean process. We had lived in Chile during the, the Pinochet, the end of the Pinochet regime and the transition to democracy. That was a fascinating period. Um, that I have actually used a lot to think about transition in Cuba. And then, you know, I was very sad to come back. I loved Chile and I didn't want to go back. So my refuge was kind of getting back into the Cuba issue. And that's how I got involved again, participating in an economist association first. And then I paired up with a colleague who had had a stroke. He, had, he was an economist and had to sell his company. And he decided, okay, I'm going to write the book on the victims, the loss of life and the cost in lives of the Cuban Revolution. So he started to work on that. Armando Lago was his name. He passed away in 2008. And, and then we paired up. And I said, this is more than this book. This is a project. You know, we got to put a name and face to the victims of the Castro regime. Because uh, the world ignored a lot of that. And I had seen how that had been really important in the Chilean case. And that's how Free Society Project started, also known as Cuba Archive. So our leading project, our first project was to document the cost and lives of the Cuban Revolution. When we have a database that I actually presented at the Oslo Freedom Forum in Oslo in 2019. And we're very proud of that project. It's a tough project, but it's a beautiful project that honors the, the victims, that gives them a name, a story of faith. And actually, we also cover deaths and disappearances on all sides of the political spectrum. And we started with the Batista regime. So it's like the cost in lives of the revolutionary period over two dictatorships on all sides of the political spectrum. And that's how this project started. And then I realized um, I love academia. That's where I kind of feel more comfortable within that world of research, investigation, knowledge, and facts. And I thought, look, this is a very asymmetric battle. We're up against a huge apparatus that has all the resources for propaganda and influence through their intelligence services and, you know, the whole rest resources of the state at, at their disposition. What can we fight with? I mean, we're minute. We can fight with facts, we can fight with truth. And then that's how our other projects developed. 
which is number one in 2000. In 2009, I caught on to the fact that Cuba's international medical missions had become their largest source of revenue, as well as uh, political capital influence, propaganda in the world, legitimacy. We started to look into that and document that. That's how our second project got, got born. And also the health in general, uh, universal health and all that propaganda and disinformation about how Cuba is supposedly a medical power uh, is what we've been trying to address also with minimal resources, but again, with the side of facts and investigations. And then our third project was born out of, you know, the outrage overseeing Cuba's essential takeover over Venezuela. And it's about Cuba's interventions in the world. And that's what Cuba Archive does. It's an activist think tank, I like to say. Yeah, like in your talk, you talked about uh, a few of the popular mythologies about Cuba. And one of which I want to go back to is this idea that Cuban healthcare, universal healthcare, is a model for the world. And you had some pretty compelling data. It's hard to find data in Cuba, as you point out, but you had some pretty compelling data um, demonstrating the impossibility that it's true. Talk a little bit about, about that. Yeah, well, it's a huge topic. Uh, and the problem with this is that, unfortunately, the Pan American Health Organization and the World Health Organization has spent decades lending their credibility to Cuba's false statistics. So when you have a authoritarian, in the case of Cuba, it's a totalitarian system that controls education of the scientists and doctors and health professionals, where they control all the institutions, the whole healthcare system is under state control, where they control the manufacturing of medical supplies, drugs, et cetera, and where they are not just the one that commercialize them overseas, but also regulate them, they control everything. So then you have the World Health and Pan American organizations saying, oh, yeah, this documentation that they provide us, these statistics are true. And Cuba supposedly is one of the leaders in the world on infant mortality, on, um, on all sorts of data, on, on communicable diseases, and you name it, uh, they're there. And when you talk to Cuban health professionals who have been in the system or statisticians or economists, you know, there's thousands that have left that are overseas. They tell you how this is controlled. And it's a scandal that, you know, we have in the world this idea of a medical power built on those lies. I'm not saying that every statistic coming from Cuba is incorrect. We can't prove that but most of them are in question, and some of them can be proven completely false. To get, well, I just wrote a, a major um, work on the role of the uh, Organization of, of Pan American Health, uh, PAHO, Pan American Health Organization, and I get them sometimes mixed up in Spanish and English. In, in, in English, it's PAHO. And I give some examples on, you know, Cuba's statements controlling dengue fever, cholera, I mean, that are that have been proven wrong by studies outside of Cuba. And yet you don't see this. Uh, it's 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 really scandalous. But yet you have organizations around the world, including one in Oakland, California, called Medic, 
Medical Education Cooperation with Cuba. It's medicwithtwocs.org that has millions of dollars in budget, a full-time staff, a medical journal, you know, access that we don't have, just dedicated to to propagating this idea that Cuba is a medical power. Yeah. And how do you compete with that? They have taken there's a there's a report by the Atlantic Philanthropies that gave medics $17 million in funding oh, in the course of you know less than 10 years uh, that took more than 600 trips of you know staffers from Congress, medical associations in Havana to, to, to the Potemkin tour that they subject them to. And then they, these people come back and they in turn propagate this idea. Well, Michael Moore made a movie about this, right? Sicko, exactly. And he yeah, went and yeah. filmed it from one of the facilities that are selected. There's like 18 facilities that we've identified where they take in medical tourism, which is a big deal in Cuba. It generates a lot of revenues. And, you know, they take the people who are, many of them well-intentioned, with good intentions, go to Cuba to learn about Cuba. But it's all manipulated, very tightly controlled and fabricated. I've, I have a colleague who worked on that, specifically receiving medical delegations from the United States. And he was actually terminated because he started to kind of um, give them hints at what the reality was. It's pretty impressive. There's a, there's a movie, I think, I can't remember the title, that addresses sicko and and its manipulations of, of reality in Cuba. Yeah, like it, and and of course Bernie Sanders has has for a long time celebrated the the Cuban healthcare system, but it just seems uh, naive to to go on a government sponsored junket where you inevitably see the things they want you to see. But 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 the story you tell is 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 a two tiered system where insiders and political elites. And medical tourists um, have access to the best of care, and the people, the, the supposedly what is the system there there is to support, um, they have nothing at all. And I, you probably can't recall the numbers specifically, but you were looking at their own uh, allocation of government expenditures based on the Cuban government's official budgeting, and a as a percentage of their total budget, healthcare was a tiny little percentage. So. It would be impossible to do the things that they say they're doing. Oh, yeah. No, last year, their official statistics in 2020, 0.8%, uh, less than 1% of the budget went to health and social services. And almost 50%, 50% went to constructing hotels, five-star hotels for capitalist tourists. It's And in the last five years, I can't recall the percentages and the exact numbers, but a minimal fraction of the budget. And this is longstanding. I mean, um, but then they have the several ways to manipulate the, the information that gets out. Like, for instance, a few years ago, I assisted a colleague who got a call. I don't even remember. He has a um, website called therealcuba.com. He created this website years ago and started to put stuff on Cuba in English, which is lacking oftentimes. And he got a call from a producer from a 2020. And we were able to get a doctor in Cuba to film within the hospitals that are not for the elite. And, and, and we got this out with the help of some 
European diplomats I knew that brought it out through embassies. I'm not going to give the details. We managed to get the information out. And then 2020, then this group uh, directed by this medic.org organization started to lobby ABC. And finally, this program turned into a four minute, you know, sort of piece, highly regulated. And uh, the producer was uh, lost her job. Wow. Yeah. And, and then you have and I had this in some of my papers, how porn correspondents for Western and uh, media or let's say from free countries supposedly go to Cuba and they have to report to this office within the Ministry of Foreign Relations that controls what they can say, what they can put out, you know, their visas. I mean, how they manipulate this and the, the health system is completely off limits. I mean, they can't criticize that. And several journalists who spent years as foreign correspondents in Cuba, including CNN's Lucia Newman, who then went to Al Jazeera, later wrote about this. And they've written books and they've written, you know, saying, oh, well, we were there. We couldn't touch this. But the reality is this. Um, and that's how they they managed to pull this off. I think but now, though, the the ruin, the misery in the system is so obvious and blatant. I mean, you go to a hospital in Cuba and there's no sheets. There's not an aspirin. There's nothing. I mean, this has been going on the shortages for many years. But it's to the extreme now and with the COVID that I think maybe the blinders are starting to come off on the health um, area. I don't know, because they are decided to continue. And now they're supposedly marketing their local COVID vaccines that I have serious questions because too many people have died with the three full doses of the vaccine. So they're going to continue with this um, medical power issue. Let's see what happens. You know, I've always been um, optimistic about, and there's there's all sorts of examples of of how technology and the democratization of, of knowledge and stories and all that stuff actually has toppled totalitarian regimes. And I, I tend to be an optimist about, about the truth getting out. Um, but you know, when you when you control institutions that that actively censor the telling of those stories, that's the 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 less optimistic version of that story. Um, talk and you, and you've written a lot about this. Talk about sort of the uh, propaganda that um, I guess you you call it the Castro model, but the but the way to control the the cultural narrative as a key to the ongoing success of Cuba, not just surviving in Cuba, but, but exporting that model across Latin America. Yes, before that, let me tell you that I share your optimism regarding the truth coming out eventually, because what we've seen during the last year is social media, you know, the government made a decision and in the end they will regret it to allow Cubans to have cell phones before it was very controlled. And they started to gradually open up the internet for two reasons. Number one, they wanted money. And this is a huge industry that is paid for by the diaspora. Um, and second, they, they, they couldn't keep it up and then try to give the idea that they're reforming. So these stories, the, you know, these films from the hospitals and the, the debacle all over Cuba are coming out every day on social media and you're seeing them. And the, and the mainstream media like the New York Times and others 
who have, you know, participated in this self-censorship are starting to understand that they can't keep it up because the contrast in the reality that people are seeing is too much. So I'm hopeful with that. And it's an irony that, you know, one thing that they did with one intention is now undermining them so much. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's the protest. Yeah. I mean, I, I and let's let's talk about propaganda, but I I'll reinforce your optimism. It's I feel like it's it's hard to keep people down, and um, Cuba is 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 an exception to that rule because it's been so such a long-lasting, devastating model. And and I'm optimistic with with protests this summer that things are starting to break up and and we can get there. But you have to you have to give Castro credit. Like um, how how did he survive so long? Well, I, um, my book on Venezuela actually is about that, in a sense. You know, how does a, it, one of the chapters is what I called Cuba's core competence. I don't think we got into this in the Oslo Freedom Forum because there wasn't time, but I think that is really important to understand how Cuba has been able to survive, despite the fact that it was a parasitic economy from very early on, because Cuba was... Uh, self-dependent on um, food supply, was a thriving economy in many ways, even despite the Batista dictatorship. But very early on, with the imposition of centralized um, socialist planning, the economy became parasitic, first of the Soviet Union and then of Venezuela, and also of foreign capitalists who have lent billions to Cuba and have not been paid back. So... The way that Cuba survived is twofold, I call it. It's uh, like two legs. The internal apparatus of control was was fashioned after, you know, the Stalinist uh, laws and repressive apparatus um, trained by the KGB, enabled by the KGB, and then uh, supported by the society of, let's say, security apparatuses uh, in the former Soviet bloc. And uh, and that's a fascinating story that we could talk a lot about because I've spent time and gone to those countries to look at the system that is very much like Cuba and how they operated. So if anybody has seen the lives of others, um, that is um, uh, narrated from the point of view of the of the Germans uh, during the Stasi times, uh, that is in many ways the life of Cubans. Um, how you have this apparatus of control that was able to stop the massive terror through massive executions and the imprisonment of tens of thousands to having the control in the life of the Cuban everywhere, at home, in, 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 at school, at work. And then they didn't have to. I mean, repression lives within the system. It doesn't have to be so obvious. You don't have to execute massive amounts of people. That's how they did it in the former Soviet bloc, and that's how it's done in Cuba, where you have a snoop, you know, in every workplace, in every, you know, block. The Castro system in many ways was even more successful because Fidel Castro copied from the Gestapo and the Stasi uh, and the Nazi models of uh, the blockmeisters and you know how in every neighborhood block they had a snoop and people looking at what you had in your refrigerator and who was visiting and this sort of thing. This still works in Cuba to a lesser extent, but uh, that's how they've been able to exert external internal control so successfully. And that's what they trespassed to Venezuela, by the way. 
especially, you know, uh, the last thing they did was they, they brought their milit military counterintelligence and really took over the, the armed forces in Venezuela. But they had transferred these models to Venezuela. And then the second uh, leg of this is the external leg, which is propaganda and influence directed at the outside world. And this has been really successful because Cuba was able to build a, an intelligence service that is comparable to the MI6, the CIA, you know, the KGB and the best in the world. And that's, you know, the other services and experts say that. And I've, I mean, I've had the opportunity of interviewing um, the few defectors from uh, Cuban intelligence that there have been at higher levels because it's very complicated to leave and, you know, their life is in peril and et cetera, et cetera. And it actually, I am married to one <laughs> because we met doing this work. Huh. And, so I, I have the inside story. My my husband was trained uh, in in the in an academy in Moscow by the KGB for a year, and then went back for the academy for chiefs of intelligence, and you know worked in Latin America with seven countries. So, you know, it was worse. I'm I'm one of the few people who studies this uh, seriously, and I was impacted when I met him almost seven years ago and uh, and learned how how amazing it is. I mean, it's worse than I thought, how effective Cuba has worked to not just buy influence, uh, but also use, you know, the revolutionary model and Che Guevara and all this um, stuff that they have been able to so successfully convey to the world that this poor little, you know, David against Goliath, the United States, the empire, all this stuff that they've sold, how effective it is, but it's worse than that. How they have blackmailed people, how they have entrapped uh, journalists, diplomats, not just in Cuba, all over the world. Uh, they're very good at it. They were they they were so good at it. I mean, my husband defected many years ago, but in his times, the Soviets would use the Cubans in Latin America and the U.S. They were more effective than even the KGB for for cultural reasons, language, etc. But still, I mean, it's um, it's pretty dangerous, and for people not to see how Cuba works, and you tell this to people, and they think you're making it up. You know, like Venezuela, I would tell my colleagues and they would say, you're crazy. That's never going to happen here. And look at look at what happened to Venezuela. And that's how Cuba manages to do this. And then they have this huge propaganda apparatus for a freak for a poor little uh, Caribbean island of 11 million people who had this massive propaganda apparatus where you have Prensa Latina, which is their um, international news agency has 400 uh, offices all over the world, a full-time staff of, you know, 500, 1,000 when you consider freelancers, et cetera. You know, they operate in seven languages, have, to have you know, publishing house. It's massive. It's a huge thing. I mean, you can look it up on the internet because they, they publish it. And I know people who've worked there. Um, that has no precedent in the world for a country of that size and of that GDP, which is one of the lowest in Latin America, if not the lowest. You know, probably one of the most famous uh, propaganda campaigns, uh, we could just call it a marketing campaign, is the, the sexing up pop culture icon 
that is today Che Guevara. It, it has no resemblance to the actual man Che Guevara. Um, in in Miami, you talked a little bit about that campaign and how they turned him into this uh, uh, sex symbol, basically. Correct. You know, for many years, I thought, oh, this was obviously made up by the Active Measures Department of Cuban Intelligence, but I had no proof of that. And, you know, I we published a book that I wrote in 2011 on Che Guevara's Forgotten Victims, because we realized when we looked at the bibliography, there was nothing on his many victims and a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot on his own personal life and any miniature about Che Guevara. And we're like, this is outrageous. And we would get a lot of calls asking about Che Guevara. And then about two years ago, I was reading a book by Ion Pachepa, who was the head of Securitate from Romania, which was the intelligence service of Romania during the Soviet years. And he defected to the United States, I believe it was 1978. And he writes a book on propaganda. I'm very fascinated by the topic. And long and behold, there's his testimony. They were instructed by the KGB to all of the, the services from the satellites uh, to help the Cuban intelligence services because they were initiating a campaign to sell the idea of Che Guevara, to romanticize the Cuban revolution. They had to clean up the image of, you know, the mass executions and the political prisoners and everything with this sexed up idea of the Cuban revolution. And it was a deliberate campaign that aided by the KGB that started with, you know, the massification of this image by a photographer uh, with the alias Corda, Cuban photographer. And then this uh, writer for the KGB produced a book on Che Guevara's life. And then this Italian uh, millionaire who was a communist in KGB hand uh, propagated the, through the posters and, and the whole image of Che Guevara that we see now. And it's probably been one of the most successful marketing campaigns of all times. And it's completely erased. Uh, let, let's talk about who he really was for a minute, because it's frustrating when I see young people and pop stars in the United States wearing these shirts. And I, I, I want to stop them and say, really? let me tell you a little bit about who this guy actually was. Um, by any modern standard, he was just a monster. He was a Taliban. You know, he didn't care about life. He was willing to take people's lives. And this is proven from when he was in the Sierra Maestra, actually. Um, there's a lot of testimonies, and I've had the opportunity of speaking with people who knew him well, who, who were there when these things happened, including the, the priest at La Cabana Fortress prison, where the first executions happened where he was the head of the tribunal, of the appellate tribunal, and, you know, people who spent a lot of time with him. And you, you don't even have to go to those testimonies. You just have to read what he wrote in his own diaries. Um, and the, the guy does, you know, come off as a psychopath. Uh, he would recite a poem that is macabre. I, in the second edition of our book, that is on Amazon, it's called Che Guevara's Forgotten Victims. I add several testimonies, and one is of this poem that he used to recite about skulls and deads and cemeteries, that he was obsessed with this. 
Uh, I also have Pachapa's testimony in there. And then the um, the other thing that, that I added in the second edition is this testimony of this uh, military guy who goes to train um, the Cubans in Mexico who were preparing to invade Cuba during the Batista regime. That's where Che Guevara uh, enters the picture for Cuba. They met in Mexico. And he talks about how he would, you know, he welcomed the opportunity to kill dogs, you know, to practice, whereas the others were having problems with that. No, he was eager to kill. And how he told the Castro brothers, this is your man. I mean, they were ready to implant terror in Cuba, and they needed people like that. And you could see it. It was immediate in Cuba. They started to execute immediately after they took power. It didn't matter if people were guilty or not. There were there were abuses committed during the Batista regime, and we've actually documented that, but never to the extent that they later said. That's one of the myths. But still, but even, you know, people who were accused of atrocities, uh, it was... It was based on lies. It was based on the premise, let's create terror. And they needed people like Che Guevara for that. So so three or four years ago, we were producing a series called Socialism Kills and and trying to come up with uh, credible body counts for these various uh, murderous regimes around the world. Um, I, I assume you've attempted to do this. We leaned heavily on the book Democide, but the... The question I have for you is, uh, do, you, do you have some sort of estimate to how many people Che Guevara killed and how many people the Castro regime killed? Give us a sense for how, just how big this was. Well, that's a, that's a tricky question. I'll tell you why. Because in, in the book, in our book, Che Guevara's Forgotten Victims, we took, you know, the ones that we could document in the Sierra Maestra, then in Santa Clara, the city he takes over on January 1st, and they execute a number of people. And then, and he left orders to execute some. So we went religiously to put that list together. And then La Cabaña, but there's a lot of mythology too. People exaggerating things and the numbers. And it's really hard after so many decades to get the actual testimony, put the list together. So I think we've documented not 200. Uh, the, the, the number does not reach 200. For That we say, okay, we can attribute these deaths to Che Guevara, 150 or 60 or something. I can't remember, honestly, even though, though I put the list together. But anybody who goes to our database can go and find case by case. Some of them have pictures. In some cases, we do have uh, primary testimony. In other cases, we take those from from other lists and books, and you know it's very difficult. But then you expand that, and you have Che Guevara. You have testimony that Che Guevara was put in charge of Cuba's, let's say, National Bank or Federal Reserve, the equivalent. But there's testimony that he continued to sign off on those who were being executed in the in the La Cabaña. And in a country like Cuba, a small island at the time had a little bit over six million people and still had the press going, reporting, you don't have to kill thousands to create mass terror. I mean, if you kill several dozen a day or, you know, a few hundred, we have uh, documented almost a thousand executions in 1959. That's a lot for a small country. And I'm sure there's more. I mean, we just have a criteria for documentation that we haven't met in many cases. 
Um, but then when you start to expand that over the years, and then you have you start counting Cuba's interventions, which started in 1959, all over Latin America. And Cuba intervened and created guerrilla groups and sponsored guerrilla groups all over the world, and then moved that to Africa and the Middle East. You know, you can expand that and say, and I feel very confident in saying the cost in lives of this regime has been hundreds of thousands. Now, we can't name them all, but just in El Salvador, Guatemala, in Central America, it's huge. Uh, Cuba, in, in, in Angola, Cuba intervened in Angola for 17 years. That was a huge war. They don't even know how many people died in that war. Some say half a million people. So it's it's quite a lot. Yeah, it's, it's hard to document because you have people trying to escape the country, um, usually to get to the United States, and then you, you probably have a significant number of people that um, uh, died early because of poverty and malnutrition and lack of health care and endless other reasons. So it's it's a hard number to get a handle on, but it's it all after a while the numbers sort of um, don't mean that much, which is why I like your project so much because it's important to put a person, a face, a life, so yeah. that people understand what this means in a tangible way. Because sometimes the numbers. Um, stop meaning anything because people don't have the context. Right. That's important. Look, we have a report, for instance, few people know of the U.S. citizens that have been killed by Cuba or in Cuba. And we have a report with a profile of each one that we've been able to document and in many cases photographs of those people. Because people have to understand these are real people whose lives were taken, who left children, mothers, you know, wives, most of them I think in all in the U, in the case of U.S. citizens, we only have men. No, there's a woman. Now that I remember, um, but uh, it's important to see their stories and and see how they died. We that report is on our website, CubaArchive.org, in our Truth and Memory project, and and it, it frustrates me because we try to convey this, you know, to get people to pay attention, and it's it's tough. It's yeah. tough. One of the things that I hope would um, yeah. get, the, get the attention of young people that are sort of romanticized about about Che and, and various uh, supposedly democratic versions of the Cuban model. And and I'm like, uh, you guys know that Castro banned the Beatles, right? And and I noticed this pattern studying other countries as well. Um, one, of, one of the very first groups of people that are persecuted by totalitarian regimes are, are musicians and artists and poets and actors, the, you know, the, the creative class that know how to tell a story and know how to engage, engage the public. But that, that was explicitly part of Castro's strategy is to, is to sort of hijack the culture, control the culture. Is that right? That is true. I mean, and especially, especially in 1990, uh, after the fall of Soviet communism, there was a, a shift in the paradigm of how to do revolution. And it's fascinating because then Castro realized, wait a minute, now we're not going to do armed takeovers of countries. We're going to control democracies and undermine them from within. And they created this photo de Sao Paulo 
movement of all to organ reorganize the the radical forces of the world and take over systems from within and that's how venezuela comes about and it is really really effective and it's very dangerous and few people know this this was inspired i i mean i caught on to this a few in 2014 writing about the venezuelan criminal gangs and i remembered from my college courses antonio gramsci the neo-marxist who argued about cultural you know who wrote about cultural hegemony i said this is gramscian and i wrote about this for um the world affairs journal in an article but i went out on a limb I didn't know that this was actually true. And then there was a doctor who was very close to Fidel Castro, and she she led, later left for exile, Dr. Hilda Molina, who now lives in, um, in Argentina. She was the head of a ne neurology institute, and Fidel Castro would go there a lot and stuff. And she confirmed to me that Castro showed up to her and said, you have to read this book. Antonio Gramsci, this is our new Bible. And I do in my book on Venezuela talk about how Chavez adopted Gramsci and I no doubt through Fidel Castro and they were actually they pulled this off and it's very dangerous because in Latin America it has been effective in Bolivia in Ecuador um, etc I think there was a shift in the model in recent years uh, especially in 2019 when they realized this takes too long and and there's setbacks because they you know they lost elections in Colombia uh, the plebiscite in Colombia and the election in Chile and the election in Argentina. And then they, you know, when the Grupo de Lima started to push on Venezuela, they pushed the flip on a more radical intervention, which is what we're seeing in, in many countries in Latin America. Now, that is also quite effective. And it's, it's borrowing from the model that Castro developed in the 1980s all over Latin America, these supposed spontaneous insurgencies in many in many cities of Latin America, for whatever argument, the external debt was at the time. Now they have anything, you know, look at Chile is a classic example that was triggered by um, an increase in the fare of the subway. And you have the country spiraled into violence. And now, you know, on the way to a new constitution fashioned after Venezuela's, you know, that started with this new model. Um, it's hard to follow all this, you know, in, in sound bites, but I mean, it's, it's pretty stunning how, how they pull this off and it's effective and it's scary and it's yeah. come to America. Yeah. It's, it's come to the United States, Gramsci, but, but this is not just new. I mean, in the United States, you have it, you see it from the Frankfurt school and the Gramscian model has been decades at work in universities, academia, and now, you know, we see it all over society. That's Gramscian. So what do you, uh, what do you see happening in America specifically that, that reflects the model besides, I mean, I, I see the sort of, uh, intellectual socialist takeover in the universities, obviously, but it's a lot more than that. Well, I mean, there's, um, KGB defector from the 1970s called Judy Besmanov that I cite, and he has videos. People should see this. It's on YouTube because he went to Canada, but apparently he was invited to do a tour of universities in the United States in the in the 1980s. And there's several of his interviews that he describes how the Soviets had, you know, had this plan to undermine American society, especially through through the universities. 
And, you know, there's four stages. We're on the last stage, <laughs> according to uh, Judy Besmanov, apparently died many years ago. But those interviews are chilling. And, you know, when I see, look, Cuba has been involved in the United States since the 1960s with the Black Panther movements and with terrorist movements, the Weather Underground. This is documented. You know, the Puerto Rican nationalists, um, Cuba has been involved, supportive, financing, receiving, you know, giving refuge to these groups. There's many, some of these leaders are still, you know, have safe haven in Cuba. So you see what is the purpose to bring revolution and strife and fragment society in the United States. So you take that model. I mean, I'm not saying Cuba invented it, but I'm saying they have been behind it. And when I see, you know, movements like, um, I don't want to name any because then that will come to haunt me. But radical movements, when you see these elements uh, that are Marxist, that are tied to Venezuela and Cuba, that raises all my alarms. I'm not saying that everybody in those movements or in the leadership of those movements is aware that being that they're pawns of these people. And I'm certainly not saying that people who support those principles of, you know, equality and, you know, no abuse, et cetera, uh, that those people, you know, shouldn't be doing that. I'm just saying they should realize that they're being used for this. And these movements, you know, very deliberately set a course to destroy America, to destroy democracy, to destroy institutions, just as what happened in Venezuela. So taking over the the cultural narrative and the march through the institutions that you're describing uh, very much has been effective, but I've always wondered about the, the long run sustainability of it. And you just look at uh, how quickly Venezuela went from an incredibly prosperous country in, in Latin America to just kind of a hellhole of, of starvation and misery. Yeah. Um, when they take over these systems and they break them, um, how do they sustain themselves? Because, you know, Cuba depended on the Soviet Union and then they depended on Venezuelan oil money. Um, when does the money run out and the model break? That's a good The oil production system now. They're paying the price for adopting the Cuban model of socialist central planning. However, Venezuela is rich in other resources, like gold and other minerals, like cobalt and stuff. So that illegal activities there, and also the Venezuelans adopted the Cuban uh, model of drug trafficking and other illegal economic activities. So you have these mafias, you know, that they help each other, you know, Iran, North Korea, Syria, et cetera. And then the Chinese and, and Russia play a role of, you know, helping strategically, et cetera. So you wonder how long is this, you know, can they sustain themselves? The Venezuelan model probably can sustain itself for a long time because they have those resources. Now, they have less and less. Uh, to to spread out among a population that is poorer and poorer every day. I can't answer how long that 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 can go on. In the Cuba case, I think they've reached a limit. I think Cuba, for economic reasons, and then the whole series of other reasons that come with the economic debacle, is at the end. They can't sustain it because Cuba has been 
technically bankrupt since 1986 when they defaulted on their external debt with the Paris Club. And they tried to, you know, Cuba has had incredible debt forgiveness. I mean, to a percentage that is huge and historic. And they still can't pay, you know, the 10% or whatever that they negotiate with Japan and Russia, et cetera. So they don't have access to capital in the world. Venezuela, they've milked. And the Russians and the Chinese are not going to come in and sustain that country, which is in ruins, the infrastructure, you know, electricity, water, sewage. It's, it's, it would require billions of dollars just to bring it to a level of sustain, of su that sustains, you know, basic services. I don't think they can do it. So who's going to come in and bail them out? I, you know, Cuba right now is receiving donations from small Caribbean islands like St. Kitts and the Grenadines. You know, little poor islands also going through COVID with a population of 50,000 are sending food to Cuba. I mean, that's how bad it is. So I think they've come to the limit unless they strike gold. They have actually an Australian mining company has just reported that they found big gold reserves in Cuba. It's still gonna not gonna be enough. They would have to be able to drill, you know, and find petroleum, huge reserves to to pull themselves out of the hole that they're in. So one of the, one of the fascinating arguments that they're making now, and I, I don't know if this is an old argument or a new one, but but blaming uh, the U.S. embargo on, yeah. on Cuba, which which is fascinating to me because the the Maduro regime and his his economic advisor, a Marxist from Spain whose name escapes me at the moment, he blamed uh, capitalist imports, particularly on the border with with Honduras. Honduras, Colombia, um, one of those. Colombia is with the border. Colombia, Colombia, yeah. Um, he he blamed the existence of, of of food across the border as as the core source of undermining the Venezuelan experiment in socialism. So now the Cuban government turns around and says, "Well, uh, the United States is not allowing us to import these capitalist goods." What's what's your take on all that? I think that's the narrative that they always use. They need they they always need to find an external um, source to blame. One of the things I talked at the Oslo Freedom Forum is this embargo narrative has been so pernicious, and it has been adopted by in in Western the Western world by academia and the media. I mean, anything that happens in Cuba is the embargo. Obviously, the, that's what they use against the population in Cuba now. Nobody believes them because they see that the stores that operate in hard currency, where you can shop if your family sends you money from, you know, the empire, people who left, uh, and the big star, five-star hotels for foreign capitalists are, are fine, whereas everything there is in ruin. So nobody, very few people believe that anymore in Cuba. But interestingly, in the Western world, you have the media saying, you know, the, the lack of medical supplies in Cuba is the embargo. Well, that's false because the embargo exempts food and medicine and many other things and humanitarian aid. You know, that is starting to gradually crumble. But they need that. They need that narrative to um, 
to put the blame on the United States. And you see that. I mean, it's almost automatic in Cuba. Anything is the fault of the, if a plane falls, it's the United States. If a coconut falls in your head, it's the United States. It's, it's almost pathetic. It's amazing how they can pull that off. But I think it's ringing hollow now. It's yeah, I guess I guess that was a classic Leninist strategy that if you didn't have an actual enemy, you always needed to make one up Absolutely. because otherwise the revolution crumbles. Um, so we had we had these massive protests in Cuba um, over the summer and um, perhaps for reasons you've implied during this conversation, we don't hear about that anymore. What's going on and, and give us some sense of of hope that that these people who are risking their lives every day for just a, a, a taste of the kind of freedom we enjoy in the United States, um, what's what's going to happen? How how do we and, and how do we help them? What happened was very surprising. I mean, I was expect I've been wondering for the last year when is this, when is there going to be an implosion? Because I see, I mean, the the extent of suffering in the daily lives of Cuban is bad and summer is particularly bad because it's very hot and you don't even have fans you know the electricity's cut the people were dying of covid with nothing not even an aspirin to treat not an ambulance to take them to a place you know there's it's awful so but it, it caught me by surprise because they were spontaneous all over the country because people were seeing that and this actually did i think start spontaneously. Some people just got fed up and say, we're going to go and demonstrate on the street, which is, you know, in Cuba, that you can't do that, obviously. And then people saw it on their on their um, phones and it started to spread and it spread to like 40 localities, you know, towns and cities all over Cuba in one day. And this lasted like one day. The repressive force, of course, is very um, prepared to put this down, but they were caught off guard. And, you know, they didn't, only one person was shot. So they didn't have orders to shoot. But they, what they did is they started arresting people in their homes. You know, they have cameras. So they went to pick up people who filmed it or took out a sign. And, you know, right now they arrested thousands. And then more than 500 are being, are still being kept and are being charged with up to 12 years of prison. That's their way of controlling the situation. And the presence of the police and the security forces was huge on the streets. So they put it down quickly, which is what they're trained to do. However, they can't put down the fact that people, I think, have reached a point where they don't care. They said, what more can I lose? And that's where the Cubans are. They are challenging the police verbally in the hospitals, on the streets. You know, in Cuba, you have to get in line to buy anything, if there's anything to buy. Um, on the, you know, they just can't keep it up the way that they repress. And I think yeah. they've gotten to the point where people just are going to go out and demonstrate. So now they've called for protests all over the country or a civic march on November 15th. First, they went out and in several cities, asked for permission to hold a peaceful demonstration because supposedly in the Cuban institu constitution, you're allowed to express yourself freely. And the government denied the permission. So the, the organizers, which is all very decentralized. I mean, it's people popping up, which is why this is so dangerous for the regime. 
This is not like a head, you know, an opposition with a leader saying we're going to demonstrate. No, this is like, you know, Peter Smith from, you know, Cienfuegos. Oh, I'm going to start in March and I'm going to go in. A, and then other people get together. That's why it's so effective. The organizer said, OK, we removed the official call for March, but we're still going to march. So that's going to be really interesting to see how the government, which, by the way, called for military exercises on the initial date of the march. So it's going to be interesting to see. But I think whatever happens over the next months, maybe even two years, is just the unraveling of this system. I think there is July 11th, with which the demonstrations um, that first started is the beginning of the end for them. I've never been of that thought after observing how effectively these people can control. Uh, but I think there's, unless they strike gold or, or get really big oil reserves, I don't see how they're going to survive. And it, it could take years to unravel. But the elite itself, the nomenclatura, you could see the, 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 you could see signs of rupture, and they must be very, very concerned. And a lot of them are corrupt. You know, those people have their accounts in safe havens all over the world, and they're wondering, when am I going to exit and save myself and my family? And that's all very disruptive for for the, those the the elite in control. Well, that's a good, optimistic way to end this conversation. Tell people where we can find your work and the work of uh, Cuba Archive and other projects you're involved with, because I think a lot of folks will be interested in learning more. Thank you. Our website is cubaarchive.org. Uh, so it's Cuba and then another archive in singular, O-R-G. And then we have two publications in Amazon. Uh, it's easier to find them under my last name, which is Werlau, W-E-R-L-A-U. That's the best way to find it in Amazon because the, the last name is strange. And um, and uh, they can always call or, or ask. You know, we're always ready to help, especially academics and researchers who need information on Cuba. You know, we're like a repository of a lot of information that's not online you know, so that we can aid anybody who wants to advance human rights through credible facts. And, you know, we can't say we own the truth, but we can say that we are committed to truth with integrity and facts that we try to, you know, to prove to, to uh, promote a debate on, on how to get Cuba, not just to get freedom, but how to solve the the Cuban people's problems through a rule of law, you know, and peacefully. That's what Cubans need to create a better future. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Maria, for, for doing this with us. My pleasure and keep up the good work. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people.